IB Talk, the global insurance industry podcast presented by Insurance Business. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to IB Talk, the global insurance industry podcast. I'm your host, Paul Lucas, and every now and then on IB Talk, we like to vary things up a little and trek outside the world of insurance with someone whose perspectives can bring us those unique insights that we may not find within the industry itself. Well, today we have one of those guests, a best-selling author, in fact, and if you needed an indication of her relevance to the insurance industry, then just take one look at the title of her new book coming out in April, You Are What You Risk. For now, however, she is perhaps best known as the author of The Grey Rhino, Michelle Wuka. Michelle, welcome to IB Talk. Thanks for having me. Uh, So Michelle, I'm going to get into The Grey Rhino in just a minute, but quickly talk to me about your career background prior to that, because we were colleagues of sorts. Um, You were a financial journalist yourself, including writing for Forbes and other Uh, other publications before moving into the World Policy Institute, where you eventually became president. Um, Talk us through the the pre-Rhino years. Well, well, I started out with this sort of, you know, 10-year plan that I was going to write a book. I've got all sorts of ideas now about 10-year plans and how those change. Um, But I started my career as a journalist, and particularly as a financial journalist interested in development economics, and then working at International Financing Review writing about the restructuring of all the defaulted debt from the 1980s, particularly in Latin America. And I saw in Argentina, sort of 2000, 2001, as their debt crisis was unfolding, a lot of people saw it coming and said something. There were even proposals for a restructuring that would have prevented a collapse and it didn't happen. And it wasn't until 10 years later that I realized how much of an impression that had made on me. I was running the World Policy Institute uh, at the time and saw Greece starting to collapse and the parallels were just shocking. And so I wrote about that as Argentina as a cautionary tale for Greece. And uh, it got picked up by CNBC and all over the places. It was one of the early calls for a preemptive restructuring. And Greece pulled itself back from the edge. And that's that's really what's informed a lot of my work now, this sort of geeky finance topic led to this question, why do some people see a big scary thing coming at them and do something about it? And why do people not? What is it that makes the difference? And the question is, of course, you know, so relevant on so many levels. And it's taken me from those beginnings as a journalist where they, where they train you as, you know, just you're telling the story, you're just saying what happened. Um, but they don't always give you enough of a sense of the kind of impact those stories can have and the questions. And sometimes I hear people talk about, quote unquote, you know, just a journalist. So I, I get my uh, hackles go up a little bit if people describe me as a journalist right now, because I know that there are those preconceptions. And of course, I've gone on to run organizations and it's much, much more of an analyst and uh, systems thinker. But I go back to my origins and the, the sort of goal of really looking for the information, trying to get the facts and ask questions. So that's stayed with me and informed me, even though I've evolved quite a bit from those early days. Yeah. Do do you miss those early days at all? You know, I'm an introvert and I think journalist was a way for me to pretend not to be an introvert. And I'm glad I went through that, but I... I think life takes us from one place to another on purpose, and I really appreciate the 
evolution. When I was younger, I was all about getting the next place. And now I'm about living through it and appreciating where you've been and what you've learned from it and what that gives you for the future. If we say you are, you're an introvert, but obviously now you've you've definitely um, come out of your your shell, so to speak, because you know I mean you do a lot of public speaking and so on. It just you know as a side note, tell us how you were a, sort of able to overcome that. Then, if you do consider yourself an, an introvert, what's been the key to kind of overcoming that? Well, I think there's a lot of uh, fake it till you make it. <laughs> Although I also hear this term ambivert, which which might be more accurate. Um, but I think putting on that journalist hat or when I was in college, I did a lot of theater where you're, you're playing another part. It, it makes you feel safer because you're not quote unquote, really yourself. Um, but one of the things that people don't always understand about introverts is that we can be out there. We can be social. We, we can be outspoken, but we just need a lot more time to recharge than other people. And once I recognized that I needed that time out, the quiet time, the space, um, then I was able to sort of own it and be more comfortable. And it made, made it easier for me in the very public settings that I'm in so much now. Yeah, it's uh, the fake it part I've, I've got nailed down. It's the making it part I need to work on. Um, Michelle, tell us a little bit about the term gray rhino. Um, what exactly does that mean? And, and, and what was the book all about? Sure. Well, the gray rhino is a metaphor for the big scary thing that's coming at you. And it was a way for me to talk about this question about the difference between Argentina and Greece. Both cases had a, a big scary theme thing, a, a debt crisis you know, coming right at you. And I'd been trying to come up with a way to talk about it that wasn't geeky sovereign credit spreads, which I realize not everybody is as excited about as I am. And I was talking with a friend, uh, and uh, he made a, a sort of a black swan joke when I'd said, you know, it's coming at you. It's, it's big and scary like a rhino. The horn kind of popped into my head. And he said, oh, you can call it a black rhino. And well, first of all, I have my issues with the whole black swan concept and the way it's been badly misused. I don't think in a way that the author intended. But I also remember going to the zoo when I was a little kid. And I thought, wait a minute, it, there actually really is something called a black rhino. So I went to Wikipedia and refreshed my memory that there's a black rhino and there's a white rhino. They're two official species names, but the black one's not black and the white one's not white. They're both actually gray. So it seemed to me to be a great way to emphasize this point that so often we see the big scary thing coming at us and we come up with strategies for looking away and doing something else. So that's where the gray rhino came from, the big dangerous thing that you're more likely to look away from than you think. And uh, it was very interesting talking to US editors and audiences because people got very defensive. They're like, well, what do you mean we need to pay attention to obvious things? We're, we're, we're Americans and we pay attention to obvious things and we fix them. So why are you saying we need to pay attention to them? That's, that's not counterintuitive. And I went, oh man, it's so counterintuitive. You don't even know it's counterintuitive. So in the subtitle of the book, uh, you know, how to recognize and act on the obvious dangers we ignore. And in a lot of the way I talked about it, I emphasized this point that yes, we do ignore them. And recently I've started to change the way I talk about it because my point isn't that by definition we ignore them. I mean, that, that's what we have the elephant in the room for, you know, you, you ignore it and everybody thinks it's okay, even though it's not. And this is something 
that gives you a choice. So now when I talk about gray rhinos, I say that you're, you're more likely to ignore it than you think, but you're not condemned to do it. And I really want the term to be a challenge uh, that helps people to be accountable and ask themselves if they're really responding to something or if they're ignoring it. It's interesting, isn't it? I mean, can you give us an example? Obviously, you, you talked about the Argentina-Greece example earlier, but maybe um, an example of how people might you know, ignore that kind of grey rhino in a more sort of daily life, if you want. Well, you know, it's interesting you mentioned daily life because I started out using the concept for big picture things like, you know, climate change and, you know, of course, financial crisis. And it got used a lot over the past year for COVID when everyone came out and said nobody could have seen this coming. And I'm like, did you see Bill Gates' TED Talk? And, you know, my great grandfather died in the 1918 pandemic. And, you know, there have been so many warnings. Um, but, you know, in personal lives, I didn't intend the concept at first to be uh, something for small things, but it's it's actually very relevant. It's like, you know, when you've got that boyfriend that all your friends say you need to to dump, or like, you know, you know, you need to go to the dentist, which is one of my favorite examples, having had a dentist phobia for many years until I ended up having to have gum surgery, and I <laughs> got over the phobia. And now I go really regularly, um, finances, health. And I've been amazed by how many people have taken this this finance and policy concept and applied it to their personal lives. I'd, I'd see these blogs. This guy in, in Indiana wrote this lovely blog about applying it to breast cancer and being pre you know, preventative about um, health problems. And um, when I was in Shanghai in 2017, when the book just really exploded, this super hip young kid came up to me and wanted an autograph and a selfie. And he says, you helped me so much with the decisions in my life. And it blew me away. Um, because I, you know, I, I didn't think of myself as a self help person. Um, but the concept really is applicable on so many levels. And so when I did my TED talk in 2019, the TED team really pushed me to develop that personal side. And it became a wonderful segue into some of the work that I'm doing now. Yeah, and, and you you mentioned there about the the, the book sort of exploding in China um, had a massive impact, obviously, didn't it? Tell us what happened when it made the front pages in China. Well, well, uh, the book came out in uh, I think it was late February, early March of uh, two thousand seventeen, and um, I, my editor emailed me, uh, but it had been out about three weeks that she said you'll be happy to know that the book has gone into its third printing already, thirty thousand copies, and I had to ask her, is that 30,000 with four zeros? <laughs> she said, yes, 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 you're right. And uh, so I was, uh, I was in China that May and in June for several speeches. And then in the middle of July, I had just come back from a trip to New York and I get home and I open up my email and it's just full of emails from my friends in China, from journalists, you know, South China Morning Post, all of these places. And apparently over the past week, there had been a uh, a five-year conference, the National uh, Financial Planning Conference, National, National Financial Work Conference, that that sets economic policy for five years. And they had used the gray rhino concept in discussions, and uh, particularly in the closing statement. And when it, when it finished, there was an official editorial in People's Daily, which is, of course, the, the official government newspaper, saying, we need to watch out not just for black swans, but for gray rhino financial risks. 
and they detailed several things like you know financial market and real estate bubbles and unregulated new wealth management products and uh, you know market volatility and uh, corporate debt and that day the stocks small cap and tech stocks stocks which were seen as the ones fell by around 5% in a single day why all the journalists wanted to talk to me it made headlines all over the world and I, it just blew me away and then the Chinese government went on to apply this. It used the concept both to strategize and then to frame and communicate what it was doing. So it it sort of made it a little harder to get mortgages. It cracked down on aggressive borrowing. It did a number of things to apply gray rhino theory and communicate it to people, which just blew me away. And you know, the following year, the real estate market started softening and there were all of these triumphal articles in the Western press about, see, we're winning the trade war. And I was like, no, that's not what it's about at all. It's about China saw risks and decided to do something about them. And the softening real estate market is part of a deliberate risk management strategy. And you may have seen over the past few months, they're worried about the real estate market again. And uh, China's uh, most senior security regulators came out and said, real estate is the biggest gray rhino facing China. So it's continued to be applied in China. Um, they've been so welcoming to, to me when I've been there. I've been there six or seven times in the last uh, few years and, and talk regularly to the Chinese media about some of the financial risk gray rhinos that, that I see. And it's even um, made its way into popular culture over there as well. Is that right? Well, actually, in Korea, you know, it's so okay. funny. I have a um, have a Google alert set up for Gray Rhino, and at the end of November, this alert came up with the lyrics to a song from BTS, which, um, for anyone who hasn't been living under a rock, uh, you know, is the biggest band in the whole world right now. You know, the first Korean board uh, band to to be nominated for the Grammys, to be the top of the Billboard Top 100. So they wrote a song called Blue and Gray which is about pandemic depression and anxiety. And there's a line in there about a gray rhino approaching. And it's a metaphor for depression and anxiety and uh, handling it. And so it blew me away. And I, I tweeted about it and I, I tagged the BTS official account. And um, as of today, I think that that has been liked 80,000 times. Wow. And retweeted over 10,000 times. So it's, it's really amazing. And that's, you know, it's helping people to talk about depression uh, in the most powerful way, which is, you know, such a huge side effect of the pandemic. And um, like, I'm really, really proud of the policy stuff. But now I got cred with my nieces and nephews. And that's like a whole other universe. <laughs> Yeah, well, it's, it's not often we get to talk about uh, Korean pop music here on, on IV Talk. But um, relating this back to our audience, obviously the insurance industry, um, how do you think that the gray rhino concept can apply here? It's hugely, hugely important in, uh, in a couple of ways, both on the finance wonky policy side, but also on the communication side. Uh, because, you know, the insurance industry in, in such a big sense is about helping people to identify and manage their risks and do something about them ahead of time. Um, I gave several talks last year uh, in the in the insurance industry, 
and uh, about really how to use this this gray rhino concept. I've got a, a sort of five stage analytical framework that helps you to understand why you or your organization or your client is not necessarily dealing with something at a particular stage. Um, and uh, in financial services, I've done a lot of talks and in breakout groups afterwards have spoken with, with planners about how to communicate with, say, family members who see risk very, very differently. So the communications part is huge, and the new book builds on that quite a bit. But on the policy side, some of the talks I've given have had to do with climate change, which, of course, is a huge, huge issue in insurance right now. And I'm sorry, I pronounce insurance the way they do in Texas. <laughs> it's insurance versus insurance. And uh, I spent eight years in Texas, which is, of course, a big insurance issue right now. Um, but, you know, you've seen mounting losses from extreme weather and climate change related events the last uh, several years and increasingly so, it seems. And so there are, there are a lot of concerns about uh, insurance companies being adequately capitalized for some of these things. And I think something that hasn't gotten enough attention is the reach that the insurance industry has. I mean, obviously, it's got this captive audience of people who are very concerned about protecting themselves from risks. And I think there's a huge opportunity to help to provide some behavioral incentives to insurance clients around these, um, particularly people who've got uh, you know high-end property that they want to protect. Those are the kind of people who are, whether they think about it or not, contributing more to climate change than other people. And you see in auto insurance, there's uh, there are all these apps that track your driving and you know give you discounts for good driving and not having accidents and things like that. Uh, and I think that the, the insurance companies could do a huge favor to the world, but also to their own bottom lines, if they would encourage more of that uh, in terms of uh, you know reducing carbon and uh, you know, reducing waste and uh, you know, environmentally and economically efficient uh, behavior. So I would love to see that grow in coming years, uh, particularly alongside the the whole ESG movement. You've probably seen lots and lots of stories about money moving into companies that pay attention to their environmental and social impact and to their governance. And then on the financial side of insurance, where obviously you need to make sure you've got enough money to pay your claims, um, an increasing realization in the financial industry that if you're investing in fossil fuels, you are undermining the parts of your portfolio that are in, say, uh, you know, commercial real estate in coastal areas or you know, municipal bonds, uh, something like 70% of the world's uh, urban populations are in coastal areas, which are, of course, very, very vulnerable to climate change. And so I think there's another big opportunity for insurance companies, which have got huge pools of money, to make sure that they are investing in ways that, uh, you know, don't use one part of their portfolio to undermine the other part of their portfolio. So I think there's going to be a huge asset shift going forward that's, that insurance companies both have a huge opportunity to lead, uh, but also if they don't get involved in it, they're going to be trampled by it. So this sort of relates um, to, I guess, what you call the risk fingerprint. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So the risk fingerprint, um, 
it's actually like a fingerprint um, that an individual has, um, except organizations or countries and societies can even have them. It's the, the risk choices that you make. And that leaves an imprint just like at a crime scene where there's, you know, the fingerprint on the on the whiskey glass that you dust, dust with the, the black powder to get it to show up. Um, but there are lots of things that go into shaping that fingerprint. And to continue with the metaphor of a real fingerprint, you know, you've got the arcs and whirls and the patterns that are genetically determined, uh, which for a person is your innate personality. But there are also your experiences, like a big scar across it. That's going to change your risk decisions and it's going to change the fingerprint that you leave. Or whether you do hard labor and your fingerprint gets all calloused up or whether you use nice soft smelling lotions and keep it all soft and lovely. Um, so it's the habits, the processes and the awareness and the attention that you give to it. Um, so just like that risk fingerprint, which, which also similarly, interestingly, looks like a, like a maze. Uh, you know, if you look at the whirls on your finger and the cover of the new book actually has a fingerprint that's in the shape of a maze to, to drive uh, that point. The risk is all about choices. Um, but by understanding that risk fingerprint, uh, what the risk decisions that you make leave as an impression that tells people who you are, that that defines your identity as distinctively as an actual fingerprint. And by understanding the sources of that, which can be extremely surprising. I uncovered crazy things like whether you eat spicy food or not a few hours earlier that changes your, your risk. By understanding the often unconscious influences on your risk decisions, you can take control of them rather than letting all of these strange and mysterious forces control you. And that's a hugely powerful tool for your own risk decision-making and the path that you navigate forward in life. So are there adjustments then that, that we can make based on these concepts that you've just outlined to, to be sort of savvier in our risk approach? Or is it a case in some cases that because we have these traits, um, so we know we're going to have a certain approach to risk, and so we have to be sort of ready for that as opposed to being able to change it? Absolutely. It, it all starts with self-awareness. You know, if you know that you are timid and a shrinking violet, then make sure you've got people around you who can support you, who can help you to make the harder decisions, to, to go beyond your comfort level. Uh, there are habits that you can do. There's a guy in the book, um, Benjamin Ritter, who's now a life coach in Chicago, but who started out as a... a his ambition was to be a professional soccer player and he had an injury that blew that out of the water and he'd been spending all of his time training and practicing. So didn't have great social skills, which he had the, uh, you know, the, the self-awareness to understand. And so he deliberately put himself in uncomfortable situations, you know, like, you know, odd jobs, wearing a costume and going around and handing things out to strangers to promote a movie or, you know, talking to weird people at bars. Um, deliberately going out of his comfort zone. So understanding what your comfort zone is and finding ways to become more comfortable getting out of that comfort zone, if that's not too much of a contradiction in terms. Um, but being being aware of the people around you and how they complement uh, you, whether they accentuate your strengths uh, or make up for your weaknesses. 
Um, and being aware of what makes you more comfortable. Uh, and that can be getting all the information that you need. Actually, knowledge is a, a way of gaining control of feeling power, uh, of making sure you've got your sort of rhino spotting team around you, people with different sets of expertise and skills and personalities. And then, you know, being aware of things like, you know, what you had for lunch. If it was spicy food, you could feel a little more confident. You know, if, if you want to ask your boss for a raise, take them out for, for Thai food. Um, and the temperature in the room, the, the fragrance in the room, the, you know, the, there's lots of interesting work with biofeedback that traders and high-performance athletes use, but that you can use similarly to sort of track where's your body at and how's that affecting the risk decisions that you're making. So the awareness part is a start, but also understanding that there are things that you can do to, to change your orientation a little bit. And I believe that you had a call just this week, actually, um, at the time of our recording right now, with some uh, chief risk officers in India, and, and they were particularly in interested in one concept uh, from the book called risk empathy. Um, can you explain that one to us? Sure. And, and I just I just love this. Um, and it was something that I'm very grateful to my, my editor, uh, Jessica Case, at Pegasus Books for, because she read that and she says, let's do something more with this. This is really cool. Um you know, empathy is becoming a much bigger deal in business right now. A lot of uh, work on how practicing empathy can help you to build teams and work better with your clients. Um, but when it comes to risk, it applies to extending this risk fingerprint concept, not just to yourself, but the people around you, helping to understand why your peers or your clients make the decisions that they do and figuring out what can make them more comfortable taking risks that they might not otherwise that are positive, you know, opportunity types of risks or to avoid negative risks, you know, dangerous type of risks. I had a wonderful conversation with Maria Ross, uh, who wrote this book, The Empathy Edge, which is about a lot of these concepts about how understanding the people around you can help you to build teamwork, uh, improve relationships, things like that. Um, I also spoke with Cindy McGovern, who's a, a sales coach, who also wrote a wonderful book called uh, Every Job is a Sales Job. And she pointed out that really every decision you're making during the day, particularly sales decisions, are risk decisions, who was uh, very afraid of losing one of their clients, who was the kind of cl client that I think there are books that tell you, you know, fire that client. You know, it was sort of, you know, not a big ticket client, super high maintenance. And uh, this woman was afraid that if she pushed them to kind of, you know, upgrade their, their package and carry their weight, she would lose them as a client. And Cindy helped them to redefine the risk. Is like the bigger risk keeping the client or is it getting rid of the client? And that helps as, as a breakthrough. So reframing what you see as the risk, how your own personality and environment and, you know, corporate culture as well, very different in legacy companies or newer companies, how those influences are shaping your decision and how comfortable you are with that and what changes that you need to make to make better risk decisions.
And I know this is a little bit of a, a sweeping question because I'm sure it's it's different for every person. But can you tell us how you know we can make start to make some of these adjustments in our lives? Maybe there's sort of one starting point that you think would help us to to sort of better assess our, our risk profile. Sure. Well, it it actually goes back a little bit to the gray rhino, where I often end my talks by leaving people with this question: What's your gray rhino? What's the big scary thing coming at you that you know you need to deal with, you know, it may not be coming right at you, but just kind of standing and glaring at you. Um, But you know, what's the big thing in your life that you know that you need to deal with. And once you've identified that there may be many, but look at the top one on the list and then ask yourself, what am I doing about it? And what can I do better? And you are what you risk helps you to look at the, the more personal changes that, you can make the, you know, the mindfulness, the biofeedback, the uh, assembling the right people around you, the what does it take to make you more comfortable doing you know, whatever is risky and, and recognizing it for a lot of people, it's a risk to try to head off a risk, you know, particularly in groups and boards, you know, people really are allergic to mentioning risks and to saying, hey, let's do something to prevent it, because you might get blamed for doing the wrong thing, or it might not work, or you might fix the problem. And then people will say, oh, well, there wasn't such a big problem in the first place. Why did you spend this money to fix the problem? Um, So, you know, it starts with awareness, both of the risks themselves, but also so much so of your ability to respond and, and how you can have more power than you think to change those responses. And a lot of risk management focuses on the risks themselves. And particularly since the great financial crisis, there's been a lot of work on you know listing risks and, and prioritizing them and measuring them and judging them. And, and we're only just now starting to get the focus on risk governance and on our responses. There's a lot of great new behavioral science shedding some insights uh, onto that. And, um, and so there's, you know, there are lots and lots of possibilities. Um, but the really the lesson is, you know, look at your response to the risk, because it's not enough just to look at the risk itself, because there's all sorts of reasons why you might misjudge it or, you know, botch your cost benefit analysis like they did in Texas. And that's not just the fault of the risk. It's the it's your individual personality. It's the people around you. It's your organizational culture. And it's it's the policy environment around you, and it's the values that your society, your country, and your culture assigns to identifying risk, assessing it properly, and responding in a way that leaves everybody better off. Yeah, there's a, a fantastic lessons, Michelle, and I, I know that you have one more because I believe you used to dance tango. I, I think three or four times a week, and and you've actually held workshops on applying tango lessons to leadership. Um, can you tell us how that works? Yeah, well, so in the '90s, I was I was living in New York and um, you know very involved in the Argentine tango scene. I didn't I didn't get quite as good as I would have liked to, but I was sort of like taking the pre advanced classes. Um, but I have this wonderful teacher, Pablo Pugliese, who comes from tango royalty. Um, his parents really uh, taught a generation of tango dancers and teachers and emphasized how important it was to understand the follower. I mean, you know, the stereotypes of tango are that, oh, it's so macho and, you know, the leader leads and the follower just does 
you know, what they're told. But the dance is not like that at all. And Pablo would tell these great stories uh, about how, you know, his parents would have fights. And uh, there was one time they they went to some place his mother didn't want to go. And um, that his father tried to lead a step, uh, like a, a, a drag, uh, where they're supposed to, you know, drag the foot of the follower. And uh, his mother didn't let her foot be dragged. In fact, and the father like almost tripped and fell. because That was her way of having her revenge. So um, great, great lessons about communication, a two-way communication, about leadership, um, about uh, setting up your followers for success. So in 2017, the World Economic Forum had the annual summit of uh, young global leaders, of which I'm an alumna, in Buenos Aires, along with the annual Latin America meeting. And I said, this is just too good of an opportunity not to put some of these lessons into practice. So I looked up Pablo, who I hadn't talked to for, for years, and uh, he connected me with um, with a teacher in uh, in Buenos Aires. And we did a workshop for the young global leaders. And then we pulled together my friend Nancy Ankowitz, uh, who's a business coach, and came up with an actual curriculum, uh, Tango for Leaders. And we did a number of pilot workshops. And then, of course, um, the events of the last year have um, <laughs> have made Tango a little bit impractical uh, to do in person. So it's sort of been on hold um, while I've been writing the book. But we're now looking at some some video applications. And, and I've written a bit about this uh, for Strategy Business and for the World Economic Forum. But it's it's such a powerful dance. And just the going through the lessons physically gives you this visceral understanding of them that just, you know, reading in a book or listening to a lecture doesn't do entirely, but it's, it's such a powerful and beautiful dance. And most of the stereotypes that most people have about the tango are totally wrong. And so it's completely worth your while to go in a little bit deeper and understand what it's really about. It's powerful, powerful lessons for for leadership, for communications, for partnership, for for teamwork, and and for life. Yeah, and, and Michelle, if anybody wants to find out more about Tango for Leadership or about your books or indeed any of the ideas that you've shared with us today, how can they get in touch? Well, we've got a website, tangoforleaders.com, and a Facebook page. Uh, and you can find out more about me at my website, thegrayrhino.com. Uh, you can get there with gray, G-R-A-Y or G-R-E-Y. Um, we, we use G-R-A-Y because it's the American spelling. Was, I was just used to it. And in hindsight, knowing what a big global phenomenon the book has become, I would have used the E. And my um, my British English speaking friends are always complaining, can't you come up with an addition with the, the E in the title? But um, thegrayrhino.com, either with an A or an E, will get you to the same place. Superb. Uh, Michelle, you've been a fantastic guest. Thank you very, very much for your time. Uh, we hope you, our listeners, will risk joining us again. Uh, we'll talk to you next time on IB Talk. Thank you for listening to IB Talk. For the latest episodes, be sure to follow us on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Apple Podcasts.